0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, this is Edric, your Guild Navigator speaking, just letting you know that we've begun our approach to our minimal safe departure for our one-way jaunt to the planet Arrakis. This is, of course, just a precaution, as the Spacing Guild currently holds an impeccable record of Holtzman-enabled space fabric distortion travel, and as always, you can rest assured that no thinking machine has taken your lives into its care, but rather the prescient melange augmented powers of the human mind. So sit back, enjoy our in-flight presentation of Maude Beep Conversations, and our flight attendants will check in with you shortly. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, I want to thank uh, musician uh, Raleigh Porter for that uh, bit of music there. That's uh, The Laxu off his 2011 album, Aftertime, released by Subtext Recording. And uh, you'll find a link uh, on the landing page for this episode to learn more about that work. But as the title of this episode and our uh, our intro narration um, uh, presents, uh, we're, of course, talking about
1: the Dune universe in this week's episodes. So you've probably heard us talking about Dune on recent episodes of the show. I've mentioned several times that I've been reading it. I finally finished reading it. Mm-hmm. I loved this book.
0: Yeah, I, I'm about halfway through my, my reread of it, uh, and this I think this will be the third time I've read it. And it's
1: it's a book that has a, a special place in my, my heart as well. It's very strange to me that a book written 50 years ago, that's one of the reasons we're doing this, mm-hmm. is that this year in 2015, it's the 50th anniversary of the publication of Dune, uh, that a book this old can feel so fresh and imaginative. Uh, so much science fiction... Is disturbingly familiar when you when you go to it. I don't know. When I went into the world of Dune, I was constantly surprised by what I encountered.
0: Yeah, it's so unlike uh, you know anything that had come before it, and 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 unlike even though it's it's had a huge impact on the genre, um, there's nothing quite like it to this day. I mean, it's uh, you have this space age feudalistic society, mm-hmm. and it's full of, um, you know, you have prophets, you have fabulous creatures, you have strange science, uh, strange technology uh, that's changing the shape of life.
1: Yeah, so to describe the influencer in terms of the influenced, uh, a young person approaching Dune today might want to think of it as sort of like Game of Thrones in space. Yeah, there's a lot of political intrigue. Yeah, but also with with a lot of philosophical commentary. And I, I have to say this is the most ecological novel I've ever read. I've never read anything as concerned with... Ecology and the conservation of resources.
0: Yeah, a tremendous amount of thought went into the creation of this this alien ecosystem, an alien ecosystem that is not only intrinsically interesting but
1: uh, but plays a, an enormously important role in the the plot. Right. So we're going to do two episodes about the science of Dune, talking about the world imagined by Frank Herbert in in his novel Dune and in the larger Dune universe, but then also. Real-world parallels to this science and how Dune has influenced science fiction. Yeah, so we're going to be discussing some of the science fiction, some of the actual science. But one of the reasons
0: that the the sci-fi aspects of uh, Frank Herbert's Dune, uh, you know, continues to resonate so well is, first of all, it's set a tremendously long period of time in the future. And he does a great job about uh, giving you some details, but leaving a lot of the, the details uh, a bit ambiguous and unexplained. And you're just sort of left to fill in fill in the blanks in your own mind. Right. And if you know how sci-fi fans work, they will fill in those blanks. Yes. Yeah, so two of our primary resources here um, are, first of all, a fabulous uh, new publication titled The Science of Dune, edited by Kevin R. Grazier, Ph.D., uh, it's an unauthorized exploration into the real science behind Frank Herbert's fictional universe, and it's a series of essays, all uh, you know, by experts in their in their field, planetologists, uh, cosmologists, etc. Uh, it's a fabulous book. We'll have a, a link to where you can pick up a copy on the landing page for this episode. Uh, we also uh, dug in a little bit into the Dune Encyclopedia, which came out in 1985. It's long out of print. But there are used copies out there available for purchase, and this was compiled by Dr. Willis E. McNelly, and uh, this also involved a, a number of different uh, freelance writers and uh, and some scientists weighing in on. Not only the science, uh, potential science underlying, uh, the details of Herbert's, uh, universe, but also, uh, some of just the cultural, uh, aspect as well. Right. It's got recipes for Fremen flatbread. <laughs> yes. I was, uh, I, I, you pointed that out yesterday and I, uh, and I was very fascinated by the topic. There are also lyrics to songs. There's, uh, as, as well as some, uh, some, some science into how, say, you know, sandworms or face dancers may have
1: worked. Yeah. You know, thinking about the recipe for Fremen flatbread, I wonder why the Fremen would cook anything because cooking is almost always uh, the cause of much evaporation and loss of moisture.
0: Well, perhaps they have a special oven like a still oven that catch- captures all that moisture.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, so they seal off the kitchen and no moisture <laughs> can escape and then you can cook. Yeah, indeed. That makes sense. Now, I also just want to uh want
0: to preface here too that we're dealing primarily with um the 1965 novel dune with some discussion of details that may pop up in uh, Frank Herbert's later novels we don't really get into uh, any of the the more recent works by uh, by Brian Herbert Brian Herbert is of course the the son of Frank Herbert and he um, continued the, the saga did some prequels and a number of legends of dune books um, with uh, with his collaborator but, uh, but I have personally not read them I know a lot of people enjoy them so um uh, and we would love to hear from anyone who uh, who has read those books, who has additional information they want to share, uh, based on their enjoyment. Um, of that
1: sort of continued universe. Right. But these two episodes we're doing are going to be primarily the first novel, Dune, and then our wonderful supplementary materials. Yeah, the kind of stuff that I think for the most part
0: people, even who haven't read the book, might be familiar with from either the, uh, of course, the, the, the David Lynch uh, film adaptation. Oh, and we got to talk about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries from several years back, or just sort of the general cultural resonance of the series. Um, and we'll, we're going to try and make sure it's not too deep. So if you have little or no understanding of the Dune universe, uh, we'll hold your hand through the sands.
1: So we mentioned it's going to be a two-part episode. This first episode today is going to be about primarily the technology of the Dune universe. And then the next episode we do, we're going to try to focus on the organic components, the the biology and the ecology of the Dune universe. But before we get into the meat of today's episode, I think we, we should just give a very, very brief cursory plot synopsis to people who haven't read the book uh, but want to be able to have a basic idea of what's going on. So what happens in the novel Dune? Well, essentially you have a space opera in which you have a galactic civilization spread across various planets, right? Right, and there is one... Precious key resource in the universe that everybody wants and sort of controls all trade, and that resource is the spice melange. It comes from one planet in the entire universe, and that planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. Yeah, it's the stuff that really makes, uh, ultimately travel between
0: planets possible. It makes the interplanetary economy possible, so everything is hinging on this one precious commodity. It's kind of the, it's essentially the oil. Of the Dune universe,
1: right, and you can't get it anywhere else. So the characters that come in on this story, the, there are two main houses in the story. There's House Atreides, and there's House Harkonnen. Mm-hmm. The Atreides are—it's—it's it's kind of Manichaean, I guess. The—the the Atreides are the good guys, and the Harkonnens are very, very bad guys. Yeah,
0: well, I mean the Harkonnens are—they're—they're—they're they're, uh, they're a product of the environment too, to a certain extent. But yeah, they're—they're
1: they're pretty villainous. Yeah, and they are essentially competing for control of the planet that produces spice. Uh, and there's a lot of warfare and backstabbing and treachery and double crossing and, and tests of loyalty. But ultimately the, the main thrust of the story is the adventure of Paul Atreides, the young son of House Atreides and his mother Jessica, while they're learning how to live on the planet Dune, and eventually participating in a journey of cosmic discovery and revenge. Yeah, and drugs. Like yeah. at, at the heart, it's such a quintessential like nineteen sixties
0: uh, product, right? Because it's about a young man who takes a, an hallucinogen
1: and uh, then saves the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I never thought of it that way, but that's that's pretty much right. Uh, we'll get way more into the drugs in the second episode, but. Today, we wanted to talk about the, the technological theater of the Dune universe. And I think one of the coolest concepts that's uh, created in the book that, that Frank Herbert comes up with is the idea that this is a future scenario without computers or robots. Right.
0: Yeah, it is a post-Butlerian jihad world. Uh, so basically, imagine that the singularity has occurred we have thinking machines everywhere that are caring for us looking after us uh more of a, i tend to interpret it more as like the beneficial aspects of uh of a post singularity world in which your computers are not like you know enslaving you and making you work in their salt mines but uh they've just become such a ubiquitous aspect of our lives and eventually humans rebel against that
1: yeah so there is, in the past of this universe, a great war against the machines. And it's, re- it's referred to, as you said, by the name, the Butlerian Jihad, from the name Butler, uh, Butlerian Jihad. And I like the idea that it invokes the concept of jihad. So it's not just like in the Terminator movies where there is a war for survival against the machines, or maybe like you might find in The Matrix or something like that. The machines take over. They decide they want to kill us or enslave us, and we fight back. There is, there is that element, I think, but mm-hmm. there is also a deeper, more spiritual element, which is where the concept of the jihad comes in. It's a physical struggle, but it's also a spiritual struggle for the soul of humankind. Yeah, indeed. Like some of the, he, Herbert, uh, Frank Herbert himself
0: didn't really give you a lot of details on it. He left it, you know, like a lot of the details in the Dune universe, a little ambiguous, and, and you, were help, you were left to sort of um, you know, dwell on the philosophical implications, but just a few quotes from uh, the fictional tomes, uh, such as the Orange Catholic Bible, uh, that play a prominent role in the universe. Thou shalt not create a machine in the likeness of a human mind. Thou shalt not disfigure the soul. And then this is a great line from uh, some of the appendix material uh, in the the sixty five novel. Then came the Butlerian Jihad, two generations of chaos. The god of machine logic was overthrown among the masses, and a new concept raised. Man may not be replaced. I've been thinking a lot about this uh, just in my daily life, you know, about not in, in, even with like thinking machines, but just the use of Facebook in your daily life, you know, the the use of social media, the use of all these gadgets. And so for me, when I think of this Butlerian Jihad, it's it seems as much rebellion against that as it is against, you know, some robot with a with a laser gun.
1: Sure, and it's not unusual for our technology to change us, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it, it doesn't just make our lives easier; it changes the way we. We prioritize things in the way we we go about our lives. One way of looking at this might be something like agriculture. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's a technology that I think a lot of people would argue fundamentally changed the human animal. Homo sapiens is not the same anymore after we invented agriculture. Right. And you could probably look at the rise of, of thinking machines, of computers, in perhaps the same way. It is changing us in a very fundamental way. I mean, who knows? what that will look like 10,000 years in the future as as the Dune universe imagines. But it's doing something to our brains when we can have vast computational power, uh, vast power of storage of information, and as imagined by this sort of singularity future, decision-making power yeah. that we can outsource
0: to machines. Yeah, just think of all the things we outsource already, all the things we no longer bother to remember
1: because mm-hmm. the machine remembers it for us. So yeah, like you said, I, your your interpretation of this coming in, I I agree with this about the Butlerian Jihad it, it having something to do with the way humans are changed by our dependence on machines. Mm-hmm. So either way,
0: we end up with a situation in in these uh, these books in this world uh, where we've kicked out the computers. we've Yeah, kicked the, out the humans thinking, won. The humans won. But now the humans have to do all the things that the machines were doing beforehand. So what what do you do when suddenly? Uh, you know, just think about a business. So you can't depend on accounting software anymore. You, need, you what do you do? You have to turn to the human mind to deal with all that accounting. What do you do when it comes to navigational concerns? I mean, even in our own lives, we become dependent on these, uh, like, uh, things like uh, Google Maps and Waze, right, to tell us how to get from point A to point B. Sure. If we throw that out the window, suddenly we have to look at maps, suddenly we have to know which way is north and south. It, it falls to the human to know how to navigate.
1: Yeah, and it gets even tougher, of course, when you're in space. Right. So, without the
0: aid of advanced uh, computer computation um, they have to turn to human capabilities uh and they have to um, essentially breed and train uh special classes of humans to uh, to to take
1: on these varying taxing tasks right and so some of these classes that you encounter in the dune universe well one of them the most straightforward upgrading of the human mind to replace computers would be the Mintats. Yes. There are several characters in the book who are explained to be Mintats, and this is pretty straightforwardly, a human computer. Right. It's a person whose mind has been trained and uh, I think in some ways stimulated by drugs. Yeah, they're constantly uh, consuming uh, some variation of some wine-type
0: uh, yeah. elixir to sort of supercharge them. It's kind of like a Red Bull. I yeah, it talks about their purple-stained
1: lips. Yeah. <laughs> and these Mintats really do in some ways fulfill the function of computers. In other ways, they're sort of like advisors. They're They're sort of the perfect... C- Computer human hybrid. They can do computation. They can store vast amounts of information. They seem to pretty much remember everything, like that they do not ever forget any details. Right. Or at least as far as I can tell from the first novel. Um, but then also they, they are attuned to human nuance. It's something that's not true of the computers today. They might be more a replacement for the kind of, you know, superhuman artificial intelligence that we imagine in, in the post singularity world.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting, too, that they have kind of an ethical guideline to them. And if you want one that's twisted, you have to – essentially, it's like a jail-broken iPhone. Yeah. Uh,
1: you, <laughs> you, <laughs> I want to order a sociopathic mentab. Yeah, in that case, you have to go to the
0: Tleilaxu, and they will provide you with one. Uh, and, of course, one of them is a, is a major character in the early goings of the novel. Yeah, that's true. And then, of course, there's the spacing guild. These are the individuals who handle interplanetary travel. And uh, this is a very complex, dangerous arrangement. So you have uh, guild navigators, individuals who have been specially bred, trained, and uh, to varying degrees engineered to make the kind of advanced navigational computations necessary to get from planet A to
1: planet B without just popping out of existence. Yeah. Now we mentioned that the Mintats rely on some kind of drug that stains their lips purple. The guild navigators definitely rely on a drug and that drug is the drug we talked about at the opening, spice. And yes. That'll, we'll go more into the spice and the effects of spice in the second episode. But it's a key part of their outlook, of of their abilities, is not just this computational power, but also sort of the ability to see the future, which Spice gives them.
0: Yeah, at least a very limited amount, just so you can
1: see where your various choices
0: will take you. And you can, at least in the next few seconds, uh, avoid the ones that will destroy you. Yeah. And therefore sort of feel your way through the dark uh, safely from point A to point B.
1: Yeah, and then there's a third group of these sort of advanced humans that I think is is maybe the most interesting of the three, and also the hardest to pin down and define. But they're the the Binny Yes. So the main character of the novel, Paul Atreides, his mother is Jessica, and she's a Bini Jeseret trained woman. Uh, the Binny Jeseret are a, a female order of super smart, very perceptive, highly trained priestesses of some kind who haven't they haven't they have an aptitude for politics for one thing Mm -hmm. like that they are tuned into all the finer points of human expression that we miss every day they're sort of human lie detectors they can tell what people are thinking and what they're going to do by micro expressions on their faces tonal shifts in their voices and that they command a sort of supreme knowledge of the human animal and how it works. Yeah. And they play a fascinating long game too, of, um, manipulating
0: mythology, um, mnemonics and, uh, and culture, uh, to their benefit.
1: Yeah. One of the most interesting examples of this, uh, that comes up in the novel is the idea of the, is it the called the missionaria protectiva? Yes. Yeah. Wh- which is this fascinating idea that the, this order goes throughout the galaxy, seeding planets with mythology, that later members of the order can rely upon if they're in a pinch, yeah, <laughs> so it's as if you went to every city in the country you live in, spreading rumors about uh i don't know prophecies about someone who would come to your community and save it from poverty and 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 everything, and then you tell all your friends exactly what to do to fulfill those prophecies, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a fabulous fail safe, and also they're
0: going laying the grounds for future manipulation. Uh, and, of course, at their heart, they also have a breeding program. Yeah, which has some, I think, some creepy similarities to eugenics programs. Yeah, Andy, yeah, there's definitely a eugenic vibe to it. Uh they're trying to breed a specific person, a uh, what they call the Quisaps Haderach, um, a term signifying one who can be many places at once. I thought the translation of that term was the shortening of the way. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I believe Yeah, that is also um, uh, invoked as well. But it, according to the Dune Appendix, in simpler terms, what they saw is, quote, a human with mental powers, Permitting him to understand and use higher order dimensions, so they're tr- they're essentially trying to breed a super a human supercomputer, with uh, from some uh, prescient abilities uh, found in the guild navigators, but without necessarily without the without necessarily having to imbue the spice. Yeah, yeah. So in a sense, they're trying to to get to that next phase of evolution. Uh, in terms of of human thinking, uh, the human thinking apparatus.
1: I don't think you can make evolution happen.
0: You just got to wait on it. (laughs) They're They're determined, though. And then on top of that, you have the Benithilaxu, who um, have continued to uh, refine human form and function, often in ways that push uh, the envelope of acceptability. So in this, you see that, you know, that post-human conundrum, like how much can you change a human and it still be a
1: human? Yeah, I I love this aspect of the universe, that it, it's so fresh and interesting that they imagine a future without robots and computers, because robots and computers, of course, are ubiquitous and. Mm-hmm uh in science fiction. And I think a lot of times with good reason, because that it certainly does seem to be the trend in human history is outsourcing all of our capabilities to machines that can do them better. Right. Or at least do them cheaper or I don't know at greater scale. But here we have human technology. It, it is really the, the the wetware future universe where all of the things that computers used to do or even that you know they can't do for us today but we only imagine they could do are all replaced by human perfection
0: yeah You know, and it it all makes me think, too, of our episodes on techno-religion, right? It's particularly some of the conundrums of of, uh, how do I create a refrigerator that will operate uh, in keeping with the laws of the Sabbath, right? Yeah. You're you're having to advance your technology, but do so within certain uh, religious frameworks and religious guidelines.
1: Right. Oh, yeah, because we don't want to lose sight of that. It is dictated in the orange catholic bible and it's not just that people sort of frown on computers the bible says you shall not do it right it's it's blasphemy to do this sort of thing so you have to you have to work around it yeah so the the sort of upgraded advanced human brain technology is a larger feature of the dune universe and if we want to try to relate that to real technology I can't see that there's all that much we could say about it, except that, of course, people can th- – there are some people with exceptional mental abilities. People can hone their, their skills in certain areas. But I, I don't know if there's a wine you can drink that will make you a mentat, and I'm doubtful we will ever discover such a thing. Because I, I tend to assume that the human mind is already operating probably at pretty close to its capacity, Mm-hmm. I, I don't buy into this whole like you know we only use ten percent of our brains, no yeah, yeah that that you tend to throw that
0: out the window when you start and also when you start looking at like what makes an individual a genius, you know it's not just in nature, but it's also nurture. There are several different factors, and granted, I'm sure the the manipulations of the B- B- Bene Gesserit uh, would involve both nature and
1: nurture but uh, but still, yeah. yeah, but on the other hand, if we do want to isolate specific capabilities of these people, say, the capability of the Bene Gesserit to read Mm micro-expressions. I think that very well could be trained in a person. Uh, And then other things like the ability of a MENTAT to recall vast amounts of information beyond what would normally be accessible to the average human's memory – uh, I think you could compare that to what the really good people, the memory athletes do. You know, like we yeah. talked about in the, the memory palace episode, people make these memory palaces. At, like, how exactly does that work?
0: Oh, that's, of course, just using a different type of memory and inv- invoking spatial memory to, uh, to memorize, uh, say, a list of
1: terms or a, you know, a li- or a table of information. Yeah. So if you have a list of 500 numbers that you could never remember, well, what if you imagine those numbers as objects that are kind of strange oriented in a room that you're familiar with some people can use methods like this to recall things that we would never normally recall yeah but anyway that's sort of the uh the the human technology in the broader universe of dune i think we should now zero in on the planet dune itself the planet arrakis because the the physical conditions on the surface of this planet constitute a huge part of the struggle of this book a lot of the plot is just based around the fact that this is a desert planet water is extremely scarce people are constantly fighting to stay alive and preserve moisture in a place where every single drop of water wants to evaporate and disappear
0: yeah it's like an extremely harsh life and it requires some uh, some rather ingenious uh Cultural innovations, but also technological innovations.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the most interesting pieces of technology we encounter in the book Dune is the still suits. Uh, so, what are the still suits? Alright, so still suit, and uh, this is something I imagine people are definitely familiar with
0: from the the movies. uh, And and, and again, may just be familiar with outside of uh, having ever seen or read anything Dune related, but it's a second skin worn by the deserted inhabiting Fremen of Arrakis, and it traps body moisture and recycles it through tubes, cooling the wear and also preventing water loss. So they, you know, collect your sweat, your urine, moisture from your fecal matter, and then uh, coils it around you, cools you down a bit, and then you drink it out of a little uh, little
1: straw in your mouthpiece. Yeah, so if you've seen pictures of Kyle McLaughlin with little things dangling out of his nose in the desert, mm-hmm. that's probably from the movie Dune, unless he did another movie with stuff hanging out of his nose in the <laughs> desert. Uh, that's from the movie Dune, and he's wearing the at least the David Lynch version of what the still suit looks like. Uh, the Fremen you mentioned, are the, these are sort of the native inhabitants of the planet Arrakis. These are the people who are perfectly adapted over many generations to life in this extremely harsh desert condition. Yeah, and the Fremen, they they take their stillsuit discipline very seriously. They don't waste any water. They, they keep their stillsuits on unless they're in a sealed-off place that can retain moisture. And it sounds like a rough life, but it's also very interesting as described in the novel. Because, of course, what happens to you in the desert without a stillsuit? Well, you die, and
0: uh, it's we're told that uh, if you're out there unprotected in the desert, you can't last a full day unless you have just a massive amount of water on yeah, hand. It just burns you right out, right? But if you have a, a Fremen still suit, a proper Fremen still suit, not one of those city models, you can uh, you can actually limit your water loss to 15 milliliters a day, and so so yeah, it's an invention of, nece- of necessity by these uh, these Fremen who were former uh, uh, nomads. That's you know. It says they were Zen Sunni nomads. Yeah, Zen Sunni nomads who popped around from planet to planet, uh, evidently picking up different technologies and uh, and you know material
1: technology along the way, which they then implement in designing the suit. Yeah, and so there's a scientist character in the novel Dune named Kynes, Liet Kynes, who explains how the still suits work. Yeah, and most, and, and again, this is a, another example of, of Herbert
0: giving us some details, perhaps in this case a few too many details. This we'll get into, uh, but leaving a lot of the the, the, um, the, the nitty gritty stuff to the reader to to uh, figure out. Uh, So Kynes tells us that a stillsuit is a micro sandwich, quote, a high efficiency filter and heat exchange system. So you have a layer that touches the skin that's porous and perspiration passes through it and it cools the body in a manner that maintains the existing cooling process of the bodies, which we'll get into. That's key and problematic. And then you have two additional layers on the suit uh, that include heat exchange filaments and uh, salt uh, precipitators, uh, the latter of which is used to reclaim salt. Now, why do we call it a still suit? Uh, what does that mean? It's just like a, a moonshine still. A right? distillery. Yeah. You're separating, which is you know all about separating different liquids. Yeah. The still up in the uh, you know, Appalachian Mountains, uh, that's all about separating alcohol. But with the, the still suit, it's about separating uh, potable water uh, from salt uh, and other
1: waste materials in a wearer's excretions. Now, what I immediately wonder when I encountered this concept is, uh, okay, that sounds very interesting. I wonder if something like that could be done in real life. But one of the main questions is, where does it get its energy from? Like, how, how is this distillation process powered? Because if you think of a still, you've got to boil things. You've got to be feeding energy into the system to power the distillation process. What's going on in the still suit? Well, according to, to Kynes, and
0: ultimately according to Frank Herbert here, uh, it's all – Due to body movement, uh, especially breathing, and then this and uh, some osmotic uh, action that's providing the pumping force for all of this water. Uh, and again, as we'll get into that, that <laughs> there are a lot of questions
1: surrounding how that would actually work. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, once the water gets distilled, it gets filtered into these things that they talk about in the novel called catch pockets, mm-hmm. wh- which is great because then you just got a little straw and you can just suck the water straight out of your suit when you're thirsty. Yeah.
0: Yeah and um used
1: to be your pee now it's tasty <laughs> desert water
0: yeah and it and uh, the urine and feces are processed in your thigh pads which is a detail I remember kind of sticking on when I read this for the first time like back in junior high or high school.
1: Yeah they just mentioned that so briefly. <laughs> yeah
0: because it also it, it makes you feel like you're you're probably constantly aware of the like the poop cakes uh-huh. that are stored in your in the thighs of your your pants. I'm like, "Frank, tell me more about the feces. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to know. Like does it we were talking about this the other day. Like does it uh, like I was kind of imagining it's it's kind of like cleaning out a uh, the filter on your dryer, except every so often a fremen has to stop and remove this,
1: this flat cake of, like, super dry poop. Yeah, I imagined it for some reason as a powder. Okay, I think yeah. that would make sense too. Yeah, if you if you've removed all of the liquid from it, it, I guess it could pretty easily be disintegrated into a powder. You can just sort of dust out the back of your suit. Yeah, I can see that working. Yeah, just drop your poop powder. As the, needed. Then again, if it's a powder, you might be you might easily inhale it. I don't know. Speaking of breathing. That's another way your body loses moisture, right? Every time you exhale, you're you're wasting some precious water vapor. It's going straight out your nose. That's right. And that's why
0: on the, the still suit, uh, you breathe in through a mouth filter, and you breathe out through the nose, and then you have that little nostril tube that's re- supposedly reclaiming moisture from your exhalation.
1: And that's pretty much it, right? I mean, yeah. Herbert doesn't give us all that much detail on exactly how the still suit works, despite how important it is in the novel.
0: That's right. So it, it we have to turn to... Uh, to expert commentators to figure out exactly how it might work and how it maybe doesn't work based on our current uh, technological understanding.
1: Okay, is there, uh, should we, should we go first to the Dune Encyclopedia or the Science of Dune? Um, I think we're gonna to go to the Science
0: of Dune first because I think this has the most robust explanation. Uh, and then the, and then the Dune
1: Encyclopedia potentially fills in some, some gaps. So the still suit article wasn't by the editor Grazier but was by a different guy, right?
0: Yes, NASA engineer John C. Smith wrote this one. Uh, and and topple, t- tackles the topic at some length in uh, the piece. Still suit, uh, he points out that we've seen a lot of still suit patents over the decades uh, since the release of Dune, but they all kind of muck up the thermodynamics, and the thermodynamics are really one of the the, the sticking points here. Uh, he he main- ultimately he maintains that if you take a strict literal interpretation of Herbert's writing, the still suit quote probably would not work, and most likely would cook the wearer like a crock pot. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, you know, and yet we can we can certainly envision technological advancements that would make a still suit possible in the future. And and since we're talking about a, a sci fi realm thirteen thousand years in the future, that's certainly time enough for various uh, technologies and especially metamaterials to come online to enable it.
1: Right. Well, okay. Well, maybe we should look at this one energy loss source at a time. Okay. So let's think about sweat first. Sweat does something really important. It cools you. This might not always be the case if you live in a very moist environment where it's hard for the sweat to evaporate. But if you're in a place like Arrakis, if you're in a desert environment, a dry environment, and you're sweating, that evaporation is bringing your temperature down. Right. I mean, it's even
0: taking place on just a you know a very ambient level. Um, failure to sweat leads to heat stroke and death. And, uh, as Smith points out, uh, in his, uh, in his, uh, piece here, uh, the, the golden gal in Goldfinger, you might remember, she's painted gold and then she dies. Uh, it's often,
1: uh, you know, they're saying, oh, she suffocated. But in reality, she would, he says she would have probably died from heat stroke. I feel like I've heard a lot of disputes about whether that person who's got the, the full body paint job would survive or not. I, I yeah. think <laughs> I've read people saying that that wouldn't actually kill you.
0: Yeah, I, I've seen, I think I've seen people go back and forth on that as well. Uh, all of us missing probably the point that they just wanted to put a dead naked golden lady uh, on the screen there. Yeah, but uh, But either way, if you enclose the entire body in a sealed suit like this, You're courting death in the form of heat stroke. And that's one of the primary design flaws with a still suit. Even when inactive, the body has to dissipate about 90 watts of heat just to balance out the heat of your metabolism. Yeah. So even if you're not, whoo, I'm sweaty, sweat is still an important process. Uh, Most of of the body heat arises from the liver, the brain, heart, and muscles, and uh, it's dissipated through blood circulation um, at the skin level. Um, along with the primary method of sweating. So even when passive, sweat glands excrete, excrete 0.6 uh, kilograms of perspiration per day, maximum rate 1.5 liters per hour. And it's also worth noting, you see images of people throwing the hood back on that that's still super. Right. The hood is the essential. Movie. Yeah, in the movie. The, the hood is essential because... Uh, your eccrine sweat glands are all over the body, but they have the highest concentration in the forehead. And the eccrine sweat glands, those are the ones that are tied, uh, you know, exclusively to cooling, not to be confused with any that have, uh, you know, hormonal issues.
1: Yeah. So you said that John C. Smith mentions that there are patents out for still suits. I tried to find an example of a still suit in the wild. I was looking around on the internet to see <laughs> if anybody had made one. I didn't find one. I did find a Gizmodo article from July 2013 proclaiming in the headline, quote, the sweat-to-water purifier, real-life dune stillsuit will save lives. (laughs) Unfortunately, this was interesting, but turned out to be kind of an exaggeration. So it referred back to a BBC article about this inventor named Andreas Hammer, who uh, he invented a device called the sweat machine, which was designed to reclaim and distill water from sweaty clothing through a process known as membrane distillation. And essentially, the machine spins clothing in a centrifuge to pull all the liquids out. So if you have a high-efficiency washing machine... Uh, that it does the same thing, though maybe not to the same level of extraction as the centrifuge. But the idea is that a, a high-efficiency washing machine spins the wet clothes really fast to drain out all of the moisture, and then the clothes spend less time in the energy-gobbling dryer. But uh, in the sweat machine, instead of the washer water, it's pulling out some salty, nasty sweat. And then it distills that liquid <laughs> by heating it, And then circulating it between two membranes. And basically the way the membranes work is that the membranes are hot on the sweaty side and cool on the other side. And this creates a vapor pressure differential that pulls water and only water. So not all of the other molecules, just the H2O molecules through the membrane and leaves all the other stuff on the other side. So they say that uh one sweaty t-shirt typically contains roughly 10 milliliters or about 0.3 ounces which is about a mouthful of water. Okay. So this is so a your sweaty t-shirt is a sip.
0: Okay. So it's a it's a a body water reclamation technology.
1: Yeah. But not something that you could actually use in a suit. No, unfortunately. So you can drink it. They say it's cleaner than tap water and they even they had cited one example of when they served the product of this machine to a bunch of people in the public uh, at this event called the Gothia Cup in Gothenburg, Sweden. I looked it up. That's like a football-slash-soccer tournament. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting, but looking at the setup of the machine, I can't really see how this could be incorporated into a feasible bodysuit. It's pretty big, uh, especially given the necessity of the centrifuge process to extract the liquid in the beginning. Like, you, you couldn't have the machine be part of a suit if it needs to extract the liquid from the suit. Right. So I don't really begrudge them a cool headline referring to a still suit, but the comparison doesn't really seem apt to me. Uh, But it is an interesting invention nonetheless. And, of course, sweat is not the only way the body wastes precious moisture as uh, if H2O were just cheap and abundant. Yeah,
0: as we mentioned already, uh, you've got to take into account urine. It's 95% water. The rest is uh, metabolic waste, salts, organic materials. You can drink a little of it and feel okay, and some people even claim therapeutic benefits, but it's ultimately uh, like cutting your kidneys out of the waste removal process if you just keep guzzling urine. Uh, so you have to take the waste out. And, of course, this is also a, a very real area of, uh, of waste processing technology.
1: Sure, yeah. Uh, reclaiming water from urine is something that happens in space all the time, for example. So, mm-hmm. uh Shipping water to space is really expensive. We talked about the costs of of getting cargo into orbit before. Uh, it's hard to put an exact figure on the cost per pound to low Earth orbit today, but traditionally a round estimate they used to give was $10,000 per pound. We don't know how much it costs today, but it's expensive. Um, and you know that great feeling you get when you've just been doing strenuous exercise and then you sit down and drink a whole glass of water at once? Astronauts on the ISS have to exercise all the time oh, wow. to yeah. mitigate the effects of bone and muscle density loss that you experience in microgravity. Um, so without reclamation efforts, that refreshing glass of water you get right after an hour on the treadmill is gonna I don't you know that might be a $10,000 glass of water, who knows? Uh, so instead of constantly shipping up new water, the crew members on the ISS rely on – uh, it's called the Environmental Control and Life Support System or the ECLSS. And that has within it a water reclamation systems. So when the astronauts exhale some hot, moist breath on each other, the habitat can recycle and reclaim it. Uh, when the astronauts pee or spit in the sink during oral hygiene routines, the station can capture that water – in a space.com article I read about this, the, the author Denise Chow said that without the recycling system, uh, an average of roughly 10,000 pounds of water per crew member would be required from Earth each year to keep the station properly functioning. Oh, wow. So, it's, it's kind of, being in space is kind of like being on Arrakis. Like, you, you know, it's, it's very, it's mighty precious. You gotta hang on to it. And so there have been a lot of efforts at uh, research for reclaiming water for space missions. Early space missions like the Apollo missions came up with solutions like electrolytic silver ion generators. And apparently these could disinfect drinking water. They would, like, remove bacteria from the water without having to dump a bunch of bleach or other chemicals in there. Uh, and then today the ISS uses a, a more complex filtration system that's got three steps. It's basically got a, a filter step that gets out particles and junk from the liquid. And then they push it through a semi-permeable membrane, uh, that has these substances in, in it that, that pull out organic materials. And then finally they, they have a catalytic oxidation reactor. And that kills bacteria and takes all the other organic compounds out of it. But of course that's at the space station level, still not a suit. Right. Could you shrink it down to the individual level? Sort of, but not exactly. So uh, NASA scientists have equipped at least some astronauts headed for the ISS with test demonstrations of personal-sized water purification bags that don't drain energy like the large-scale recycling systems, uh, but instead depend on this process known as forward osmosis. Generally, this concept is called the forward osmosis bag, or FOB, F-O-B. Ah, the FOB. Yeah, and so forward osmosis takes place when you've got two liquid solutions separated by another one of these semi-permeable membranes. One of the liquid solutions has a lower concentration. This is probably going to be your dirty water. Mm-hmm. And then one has a higher concentration and that's this electrolyte filled solution, which I think is like Gatorade or or something pretty much along those lines. And then the water flows naturally from the lower concentration solution to the higher. And the semi-permeability of the membrane means that it allows water molecules to pass through, but not larger molecules or objects like bacteria and proteins. From what I can tell, NASA's still investigating how well and under what conditions these devices work. Uh, I read a Wired report in 2011 that said that they hadn't been able at that time to prevent urea, which is a waste product that you find in urine, Mm -hmm. uh, from getting through in the osmosis bag. But apparently a a Japanese TV crew member decided to try some of the product of the forward osmosis bag despite the, despite that warning. And he said it tasted like Capri Sun. So there's your your free ad for Capri Sun. A, a more recent work I found uh, on the – it's a NASA research report from 2015 that mentioned the fact that these osmosis-powered devices work slower in microgravity, and they're testing ways of solving that problem. But, okay, so sweat, urine – Kind of gross, but at least basically liquid. Are we ready to talk about feces?
0: Uh, well, we are in the podcast, but the the larger concern is that we're really not as a, a civilization. Um, <laughs> feces is, is of course seventy five percent water. Uh, the the rest is undigested food and bacteria, but but there is water in there, water that is ideally worth reclaiming. But we've actually seen far fewer studies regarding fecal water reclamation, though. The the thing is, of course, this takes place as does urine water reclamation, sweat reclamation, whatever, via the natural water cycle on our on the planet uh, itself. Sure. Now, um, in in his um, essay, Smith points to a University of Colorado study on water recycling for a Mars mission uh, that found that reclaimed water would be minimal uh, from from fe- feces, uh, and that they'd also have to factor in quote psychological concerns unquote, for the crew. <laughs> and so in, in this, yeah, in this we get back to the psychological uh, contagion inherent in any water reclamation effort. And, uh, I mean, I've, I've blogged about this in the past. You, you, you have to be able to wrap your mind around the, the 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 fact that the water you're drinking used to be urine or used to be part of poop. When really, I mean, you can essentially say that any water you drink was you know, it may have been poop at some point in the past. It oh, may have been dinosaur. It almost mirror, certainly right? was. Yeah. Right, but uh, but yeah, you have to deal with you know how is the how is the user uh, end of that experience working out? And it's uh, it's it's interesting because it, it could be done, uh, and we, we just haven't faced <laughs> a dire enough circumstance. Despite the fact that we're talking about a trip to Mars here. Um, interestingly enough, in the book Packing for Mars by Mary Roach, she mentions that NASA scientists, at one point, they actually pondered recycling uh, fecal matter into food, but they never pursued it at all just because of that ick factor. And part of this, as she lays out, you have uh, at the time, you know, especially early on in the, in the space program, you have the very sort of cowboy mentality of the you know the ex uh, uh, test pilots who are becoming astronauts, the explorers, and then you have the scientists, and the scientists are are, are more inclined to to present some out-there notions such as, what if you could eat portions of the spaceship? That was another idea that came up, eating, (laughs) what if the the, the insulation itself was food? Uh, Or, you know, making small cakes out of of poop. And, of course, the astronauts themselves were not going to go for that idea on any level, again, due to the psychological contagion uh, inherent
1: in fecal water reclamation. That's so gross, I got to admit. I I mean, it's one of those things where I wonder if there's an equivalent to the mentat, the Benny Jeserit, the guild navigator, the person who has upgraded their mental faculties to escape the ick factor. It's an ickless human, the yeah. person who <laughs> eats poop with no qualms.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess again it just comes down to are you in a dire enough condition? And Arrakis is that uh, is that environment. Now, Smith, uh, coming back to sweating itself though uh smith uh has a real problem with the idea that the suit would allow your normal uh sweat uh process to to carry on uh, because uh because as we'll discuss it's not just a matter of water leaving your body and and, and ooh, now you're cool um you need an evaporation to take place. And he doubts that, quote, near-normal evaporation process would even be possible in a still suit. For, uh, for organic cooling to take place, sweat must go through a phase change from a liquid to vapor in order to remove heat and cool the skin. So it's an endothermic process. And moving sweat away, just whisk, uh, wicking it away, uh, as with specially designed workout garments, that just merely makes your skin drier, not cooler. Uh, that's why so-called wicking fabrics, uh, which use a passive capillary action to move sweat uh, from your skin to the outer surface of your workout garment, they help you stay warm during cold weather workouts. You're uh, interfering in the natural cooling process, not not at 100% uh, level because you know, it's not skin tight, Uh, Not completely, but it's still preventing sweat from doing what it does. And I think anybody who's ever worn a scuba suit uh, outside of the water in the sun for any amount of time can probably attest to that. You You can overheat really quickly in that environment because it's making such close contact with the skin.
1: When I was watching the David Lynch Dune movie, I was looking at those actors and thinking like, wow, that looks really hot.
0: Yeah, I mean apparently these were these were thin latex bodysuits and of course they were not functional still suits. So they were having to deal with um, with o- with overheating, uh you know falling out from the heat. Uh and interestingly enough, Patrick Stewart has apparently gone on record saying it's the the least comfortable thing he ever wore for <laughs> uh for any kind of a film or TV project. And this is from the guy Who, you know, who who had to wear that awful Starfleet uniform? Uh Um, I was not aware of this, but apparently uh, they call it the um, the Picard maneuver. If you watch it enough, you'll see that he's always tugging down on the garment to keep it from riding up. (laughs) So anyway, the bottom line here. is that the skin-level layer of the still suit would need to be a highly thermally conductive layer that allowed evaporating cooling to take place, Um, again, perhaps via some as-yet-uninvented metamaterial. And yet, even then, the humidity in the skin-level porous layer would need to be high humidity, uh, which could, in theory, merely just escalate the whole situation. More perspiration, more heat. And according to John C. Smith, the suit would have to self dehumidify as well. So, and in order for all that water vapor to become liquid again so that you could drink it, you'd have to have condensation occur. And for this phase change to happen, uh, which is an exothermic process, you need to have a cooled layer, such as, you know, a cold glass on a hot day and you see that, you know, the moisture form on it. And there's no mention of refrigeration in the suit, but it would be necessary, as far as we understand the process, for that phase shift to happen.
1: Man, that just sounds like a mess.
0: Yeah, it, it that's the the thing. It seems like it would be a if you don't have a clear understanding of how sweat works and how how the, how cooling works, and indeed how cooling systems work, it seems like it would be a, a simpler uh, mechanism, but it's not.
1: Yeah. Now, of course, refrigeration does exist, so perhaps it's just a question of how much bulk do you want to incorporate into your suit. Yeah. I mean, can you fit some manner of heat pump in there, a Freon
0: compressor? Um, you know, we have. We have firefighters that use like blue ice packs near the skin to keep their body from overheating, but would that make sense at all in a you know water scarce environment? And then uh, and then you also have to any of these systems would also involve more power, uh, and all we have to go on is that it's powered by motions of the body, especially breathing and according to, to Smith here, that would n- not be sufficient to power the suit given our current uh, progress on motion generated power even if we augmented it with solar power, which again is iffy because you want to travel by night right. uh, on arrakis um, we y- you just end up again not being able to keep up with with the Energy requirements for the suit. So that's what Smith has to say, uh, more recent commentary. But, uh, if we look to the Dune Encyclopedia and the entry written by Christine Watson, uh, she stresses the use of still cloth, uh, based on the principles of cryogenics, uh, of a cryogenic separator that's, uh, she says used on a number of worlds to draw oxygen and other gases from the planet's atmosphere. So here we see, uh, you know, a, a futuristic, uh, metamaterial explanation. And as for cooling, uh, she says that the, The tubes contained air at the beginning of the suit's cycle. The air pressure built up by the pumping action of the wearer's breathing and by heel pumps. Uh, At a preset pressure, the air was released into a holding chamber in the suit's hood. This sudden release cooled the air by the Joule-Thompson effect, and the cooled air was drawn back into the system and again through the suit, dropping the temperature of the separating layers. And that uh, Joule-Thompson effect, by the way, that's the, the temperature exchange of a gas or liquid when it is forced through a valve or porous plug. While kept insulated so that no heat is exchanged with the environment, I got to be honest. I didn't follow that. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I, had, I mean, I had to go at it a couple of times. But basically, it comes down to the fact that the hood would be kind of an, an, an essential air bladder uh, for the suit's cooling system. So, imagine the still suit. Imagine Cal McLaughlin in the still suit, but with kind of a
1: ballooned uh, <laughs> um, hood portion. Man, that makes Muad'Dib a little less. Uh, a little less. Cool-looking if he's got a balloon
0: head? Yeah, I would think so. So, again, you have to kind of talk it up to say, however the steel suit works, it evidently involves some materials and technologies that we haven't quite uh, figured out uh, in this ancient day and age. Yeah. Now, um, another uh, interesting technology that you see on Arrakis and also elsewhere in in the worlds of
1: Dune, the use of ornithopters
0: of Aircraft that fly via flapping wings.
1: Yeah, so we are told that the, the power of House Atreides on their home planet of Caladan before they move to the, the desert planet of Arrakis is air power. They're an air force power, kind of like you might think of the United States on the sort of uh, military geopolitical world stage. It, the power is concentrated in the ability to strike from above. Mm-hmm. But... Their way of striking from above is not much like anything we would commonly use on on Earth technology today. It is like something we would commonly see in the biological world. So, of course, birds fly by flapping their wings. Insects fly by flapping their wings. It seems like a perfectly normal way to get around. But there's a reason our airplanes don't do this. Uh, Ornithopters can be built. You can make a machine that stays in the air by flapping wings but it is not a very practical way to move heavy cargo or passengers. That's right, and
0: and certainly that's what you see utilized in in the the Dune universe, like sweeping down, swooping down to pick up uh a, a, you know a mobile spice factory yeah. off of the sands before a worm can get to it. Yeah, according to Dr. James Usherwood of the University of London's RVC Structure and Motion Laboratory, uh, this is one area of design you know, where nature doesn't quite nail it, and, and this is <laughs> kind of ironic because in the field of biomimicry, we see Uh, In in a lot of cases, we can turn to nature and say, well, how did nature evolve to solve this design problem? And oftentimes, they have a really elegant – nature has a really elegant solution.
1: I'd say that's especially true on the very small scale. Mm -hmm. Biomimicry becomes more and more powerful the smaller you go. Yeah. In uh – in an essay titled a Flying and
0: Walking, Learning from Nature, and this was published in the book 70 uh, Great Mysteries of the Natural World, which I highly recommend, um, Usherwood points out that a slow-flying pigeon requires up to four times the power an equivalent helicopter would need. And hovering is even worse, resulting in uh, pitiful amounts of lift for the amount of energy uh, exerted. Each pump of the wings requires yet another burst of energy, and it all adds up pretty quickly. That's yeah. why hummingbirds have the highest energy expenditure of any warm-blooded animal, ten times that of a human. They're perpetually on the verge of starvation, uh, and, ha- and, it's, and sometimes they have to actually go into kind of suspended animation to deal with these uh, these energy costs, uh, and, and all the time you know, consuming colossal amounts of nectar to keep up. They're little sugar-water vampires yeah. that
1: cannot be sated.
0: Yeah, so you know, we you know, looking back, you see early aviation pioneers who toyed around with flapping wings, uh, generally uh, with uh, disastrous results. Uh But you do see scientists that have um, been looking into its use for micro air vehicles or MAVs, and these are tiny robotic uh, aircraft that depend on biomechanical flight designs. Uh, and the funding typically comes into play, uh, you know, for obvious surveillance purposes, right? Some sort of tiny robot with buzzing, flapping
1: wings that you can use to spy on somebody. Now what is the appeal of that over just like a tiny quad rotor drone or something like that? Is it just that it would look like an insect? I think so, and I think also there is that, uh, that
0: biomimicry attraction saying if it's, if it's flight at a small scale then perhaps, uh, perhaps there is an advantage in drawing on real-world comparisons. But overall, we are not going to see passenger planes with flapping wings. No. And uh, I was looking at a a U.S. Army Research Office report from 2005 uh, that was weighing in and saying that when it comes to MAVs, you're looking at enormous manufacturing challenges, inefficient energy usage, and dependence on less understood understood small-scale physics. So at this point in time, uh, even small ornithopters uh, seem out of reach.
1: Yeah. Now, if you want to just cheat and invoke some science fiction magic, you might say that the ornithopters have something to do with other technology present in the Dune universe, like uh, like suspensors, I noticed you putting a note here, right? Yeah, yeah. And this draws us right into another important technology
0: that we're going to spend less time on because there's there are fewer answers, and that is the Holtzman effect that enables uh, faster-than-light travel, it enables personal shields, it enables just ubiquitous use of anti-gravity suspensors that, I mean, you you know, the the main character, uh, one of the main characters, Vladimir Harkonnen, uses it to float around and suspend his bulk. But you also see mentions of just, you know, here's a
1: suspensor-enabled chair in a room. If you watch any scene from the movie and not the whole movie, not the whole David Lynch movie, go watch the scene where, where, uh, Vladimir Harkonnen floats up and screams, I will have the spice. <laughs> That's pretty good. But anyway, I thought this is also a really cool technology as imagined in the books, specifically with application to the shields. Now, there are personal energy shields imagined uh, in the Dune universe, and you've probably seen all kinds of science fiction that has shields, you you know, mm-hmm. like a shields up, you know, you put them up around the spaceship and they deflect incoming weaponry uh, projectiles, energy beams. But these are personal shields that are often imagined. Well, actually, there are large scale shields and there are personal shields, but you might like click a button on your belt and suddenly a shield comes up around your body. Somebody tries to run and stab you with a knife. They'll be deflected by the shield. And so the solution to this creates a very interesting combat dynamic that people talk about in the book where uh, people engaging in knife fights with shields activated have to come up with ways of trying to move their knife very slowly Mm -hmm. toward the enemy because a quickly incoming knife will be deflected by the shield. But if you can stab ever so slowly, you can go through the shield gently and then you can you can penetrate the person's skin and make them bleed.
0: Yeah. So the defensive technology uh, requires an entirely, well, not entirely, but a different style of martial arts. So we, we don't know a lot about the Holtzman effect in the books. Uh, it's described as the negative repelling effect of a shield generator, uh, and a suspensor is the secondary low drain phase of the Holtzman gen- field generator, and it nullifies what? gravity <laughs> within. Yeah, it nullifies gravity within certain limits uh, prescribed by relative mass and energy consumption. So, in this, uh, we we have no choice but to turn to the science of Dune uh, and uh, the writings there of. Um, Planetary scientist uh, Kevin R. Grazer, who also edited, uh, and along uh, he also worked with uh, uh, physicist Jess Seeger on some of this. And uh, as they point out, much of the whole Haltzman situation is unexplained. In the later books, we do learn that that, uh, Guild Highliners, the big spaceships, travel the stars by the, quote, compression or warping of space-time in conjunction with mass neutralization. And as uh, planetary scientist uh again Kevin R. Grazer points out uh in cosmic origami, that's the piece in the science of Dune, uh if the mass of a spaceship could be nullified, then the relativistic effects of high speed space travel could be reduced. So essentially it's talking about all right, if you could turn if you could simply dampen or uh um, nullify the mass of an object, then that would enable you to uh to cheat in various respects in terms of acceleration in space-time. Uh, also, Grazer and, uh, and Seeger posit that uh, the Holtzman field is an energy screening shield. Uh, perhaps it screens the mass of an object from the rest of the universe. Lowering the mass of an object would also lower the force of gravity on it, lower it enough, and you just float around uh, up in the air. And as for space travel... Theory and observations of general relativity indicate that space-time can be curved and warped, and perhaps it can even be folded and compressed. So, again, the classic example is you have a map, right, and you fold the map, and then you just poke a hole through point A and point B, and now you have the hole, right? Right. The the, the, the Tesseract. Yeah, there you go. the Tesseract example, the event horizon example. Um, You thus shorten the distance between two points, meaning that faster-than-light acceleration and all the uh, problems therein uh, might not even be necessary. In the Dune books, we don't know much more beyond that, uh, other than the process is dangerous and costly. Uh, You really need a number-crunching power of an advanced computer to handle it all, but in the Dune universe,
1: it all falls to human minds enhanced by spice. All right, so that's pretty out there science fiction. I think I'd have to say the same thing about the energy shields as that relates to the the Holtzman effect. I I can't think of any example, uh, and I wasn't able to find any example, of a real – energy shield in the world that would successfully deflect incoming matter like that, especially not without harming the person who is wearing it. I mean, you could imagine wearing a huge magnet of some kind. Yeah. that You know, if somebody tries to shoot a bullet at you or something like that, might be able to deflect it if it's powerful enough. Uh, but I mean, at certain points, you're getting into levels of energy that make the proposition ridiculous. And so if you're imagining an energy shield like they have, maybe the closest thing I've seen would be propositions of energy shields, like ion shields around spaceships to prevent incoming radiation. But okay. I, I don't even know if that's really viable. Okay. Yeah, it's definitely
0: less down to earth compared to the still sit. <laughs> So there you have it. Uh, Some of the technology of Dune. Not all of it by any means. We just uh, decided to draw on a few uh, examples that we could discuss here in the podcast. Uh, And again, we're going to do a second episode, and we'll get into the biology of Dune a bit, where we're definitely going to discuss sandworms uh, in detail. So... uh As we lead out here, we're going to enjoy uh, another track from uh, Raleigh Porter. This is uh, Ix, again off the uh, 2011 album After Time, released by Subtext Recordings. There's a link on the landing page, but you can learn more about his work at raleighporter.com. Uh, in the meantime, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you will find all of our podcasts, videos, and blog posts, as well as links out to our social media accounts.
1: And if you want to get in touch with us about uh, your favorite fact about the Dune universe or any feedback about these episodes, you can email us at BlowTheMind at com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.